an overview of what you've heard so far because if it's fairly new for you you won't be able to make the necessary connections that is something one has to eventually learn to make the connections I've mentioned this once before but I'm doing it on purpose again because it's extremely important first of all one has to make the connection of what's happening within oneself to that what the Buddha said that's the first connection one has to make and the second connection is how the different guidelines that he gives belong together each one supports all others it's none of them are separate nothing is different everything is geared towards the same thing one can say that that one thing is to lose the totally wrong understanding of what a human being is which results in the ego assertion that is the goal and the direction of everything that the Buddha teaches and many of these things are methods which have to be done no use knowing them only we have to do them if we don't know them we can't even do them so this particular discourse which I'm sure you remember is a question by a certain king Ayatasattu who was having a great deal of remorse the bad conscience because he killed his father and his question is what's the good of leading a spiritual life so it's called the fruits of reclusion and first he tells all the things that he has heard which are non which are irrelevant and then the buddha gives 14 fruits of reclusion 14 fruits of the spiritual life the buddha also at another time said quite clearly that one can attain those fruits as a householder but that it's easier in robes now that may have any relevance for oneself or not but he certainly said it can be done now 14 fruits the first two that a slave or a laborer gets out from under the dominance of the king and becomes a monk and therefore has the freedom to practice the whole day and doesn't have to obey obey in a worldly sense someone who is pushing him around next fruit is a householder or a farmer doing that and therefore getting out from under paying taxes having to worry about bank accounts insurance policies um repairs on the house 
relatives visiting and so on. He can practice all day long. First two fruits. And then come four requisites. Four things which are required as a basis to attain the other fruits. Now the other fruits only start the first fruit that one can get of spiritual life is the first jhana. That's where it starts. Everything else that I've been explaining are the requisites, the necessary underpinnings in order to have some fruit. Now obviously attaining the first jhana isn't enough either, but it is the first step on the spiritual path. One should therefore assume that anyone who's wearing robes has attained at least that. That's an assumption. There are four jhanas which we'll talk about, one after the other, which are four fruits. And then there are eight inside results, inside steps, progressively, of which only one or two will be discussed in detail because they are the ones <coughs> which are of greatest importance for us. We haven't got anywhere near that yet. Maybe we'll get there. So we have four jhanas, four meditative absorptions, and eight steps of insight, which are twelve fruits. The last fruit, obviously, will be Nibbana. That's obvious. And the first two are being able to practice, getting out from too much worldly life, getting away from all the obligations, distractions, and distortions that worldly life has to contain. In between are four requisites. And the four requisites are, the first one is morality. And not only the five precepts, which we have already discussed in detail, but also that which we discussed subsequently, namely the additional guarding of oneself by not going into the distractions of worldly life so much and having the right kind of livelihood and all the many other things that were mentioned about living a life which has a higher morality in it or more refined I would like to say a more refined morality which goes further than just not lying and stealing and killing and raping and getting drunk the other lower five precepts which are obvious that they have to be kept if one wants to meditate but they're more refined aspects that's the first requisite and the second requisite was guarding the senses in other words protecting oneself from greed and hate from wanting and aversion 
by not even making contact, which goes along with the first one when it is said not to go to shows which are unseemly and not to um, have too much entertainment because that does um, excite the mind. Now, sense contact always excites the mind, doesn't matter what it is. Now, guarding the senses also means guarding one's thinking processes. One sense. Now, that's the second requisite. And the third requisite, which I used as the fourth one, I turned the third and the fourth one around because there was much more to be said about the uh, third one. The third one is mindfulness and clear comprehension, and the fourth one is contentment. Now, I will again refer to the third one by just saying about the fourth one, the contentment, that it means, as we have already discussed, that one is satisfied with little. The less one has, the less obligation and responsibility there is. And the less one has to repair and ensure and replace. So the contentment with little, which does not mean making a mess of the little one has. It's very often misunderstood. It means keeping it just as nicely clean and in order as if one had much. But it means being contented with the minimum. Now, obviously, in a household, the minimum is more than in a, um, a monastery. And yet there are certain requirements also in a monastery. Which means that one can, and this is not unimportant, go through one's house once a week and get rid of what's unnecessary or once a month. At the very least once a month. Get rid of it. It's nothing but extra encumbrances which eventually have the effect of choking. I'm sure everybody has been in a house where he felt choked because it's just so full of clutter. And this choking effect, then of course the one who's in there doesn't realize anymore. So contentment with little, which is actually number four. And number three, Mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness has in itself four bases, four foundations, which we have already discussed. And we are on the fourth one. First one is body. Second one is feeling. Third one, mental, emotional states. And the fourth one, the mind content. Now, in that fourth one of mind content, it refers to aspect of the Buddha's teaching which one has to remember, otherwise one can't refer one's mind content to that. If one doesn't remember the five hindrances, there's no way one can refer one's content of mind to one of them or the lack of one of them. 
I mean, anything is possible. We might also be without it occasionally. So, if we don't know them, we can't refer to them. So, a certain amount of knowledge is necessary in order to have a spiritual path which is all-encompassing. And this is what the Buddha's path is. It is all-encompassing. It takes in the whole body and mind phenomena which we call me. It's just a word. It's called me or I or we give it a name. So it is, encompasses all of that. And because it does, it encompasses the universe, the microcosm and the macrocosm. Therefore, we have to know that whole aspect of it, even if we only remember a few bits and pieces. Eventually, the mind does one day have that intention to remember more of it. All it needs is the intention. That's all. Now, obviously, no mind can remember everything. But one can make choices. And if one wants to lead a spiritual life, one's got to make the right choices. That's all there is to it. What do I wish to remember? Do I really want to remember everybody's phone number? Or do I want to remember the five hindrances? Just making a choice, that's all. And if I remember the five hindrances, as well as I remember my own name, then one can refer to them. So we have four foundations of mindfulness. And we have clear comprehension, which in itself also has four parts. The Buddha's teaching, while it is profound and deep, is also explained in a way which makes it easier to remember. So that all we have to know is, well, there were four, so what are they? And that clear comprehension is nothing but the companion for mindfulness. We can't use it without mindfulness. But we can use mindfulness without clear comprehension. And lots of people do. Those that have learned vipassana in parenthesis, meditation. It's not enough. It's a very good start. It's an excellent start to use mindfulness without clear comprehension. It's getting one anyway onto the path. But Eventually, clear comprehension has to be added to it as a companion. So, if we use bare attention, that really keeps the mind from rummaging around and roving. The roving mind is the sense contact of thinking which needs to be guarded. The roving mind usually ends up with a lot of nonsense because it contacts anything at all and then makes the wrong assumptions, things which one either hates or loves or wants. So the roving mind is a sense contact of thinking which we need to guard against, and mindfulness is that guard. Mindfulness obviously is also the guard against the other sense contacts of going too wild, but 
particularly for the thinking aspect it watches at. The guarding of the other sense context can very well be done just by refraining. We don't have to go out shopping and looking at all the windows and seeing what else there is that we haven't got yet or what else there is that we would like but can't afford. And we don't have to go and see a show which is um, exciting for the mind because we have eye and ear contact. But mindfulness is the one that guards from the roving thinking. So there we have that guarding through mindfulness and then because having done that we need the clear comprehension for insight and the last one of the fourth one of the clear comprehension was never forgetting the Dhamma content of all that we have any contact with and the Dhamma content is always Anicca Dukkanata, impermanent, unsatisfactory, non-self, which means substanceless, corelessness. Either one of those three, whichever we prefer, doesn't matter. Perfectly um, immaterial, which one of the three we want. So the third one of the requisites is connected with the others. Because with mindfulness, they're all connected. I'm trying to show you the connection, but one day you're going to have to make it yourself. If you can't make the connection yourself, the whole thing is going to remain a mumble-jumble. It's all going to be just bits and pieces. It's going to be, have to be totally connected. The third one, the mindfulness and clear comprehension connects to the morality. Because if we don't protect ourselves, that higher refined morality will go out the window. And our contentment makes it possible to guard the senses. It all works together. And in addition to that, our moral conduct, our guarding the senses, our contentment, our mindfulness create happiness and peacefulness in the mind, which then makes it possible to meditate. The happiness and peacefulness in the mind are the underlying factor to get the meditation so that it becomes an established procedure in one's mind. It's no longer dependent upon a meditation course or a teacher. It's no longer dependent on anything except that one sits down to do it. Therefore, these are called the four requisites. They are required. Required behavior. And the more one follows this required behavior, the easier the meditation becomes. Now, very often this is totally misunderstood as far as the morality goes. One very often is finds, particularly in certain traditions, that the morality is practiced for morality's sake. Well, that's very nice, but it can become a fanatical adherence to minor rules and regulations which are considered then to be the epitome of the teaching. It's not that at all. Morality is practiced for the simple reason that it goes towards the first jhana. This discourse, second discourse of Diganikaya, long discourses, makes this quite clear. The four requisites. 
required behavior. Now then, mindfulness being, in the Buddha's own words, ekayana. Eka means one, yana means path, the one path for the purification of beings, for the destruction of pain, grief and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, since this is not said about anything else ever in the whole of the discourse collection except about mindfulness, I am therefore taking a lot of time to explain it in all its facets. Or maybe I should backtrack on that and say in as many facets as I can think of and present. I Maybe it's not all of them, maybe there are more, because books like that have been written about it with excellent um, explanations. And it reoccurs in the Buddha's teaching continually, but so do the jhanas. And there's also, and I will say that now, a myth abroad that while they're very nice, they're not necessary. And that's a total misconception. Why would the Buddha not have said so, if it was so? That they're very nice, but not necessary. He said everything else. He told everybody how to use a toilet, and I'm not kidding. He really did. And he told everybody how to wear their robes. And he told everybody how to think. So why shouldn't he have said this about the jhanas? That they were very nice, but not necessary. On the contrary, they are the pathway. And they uh, arise when the requisites are practiced. They do not necessarily only arise when these requisites are perfected. Because if that was the case, I don't think any of my students would be doing them. Mm -hmm. And actually they are. So it it could not possibly hinge on the perfection. It just hinges on their practice. And some people find it much easier to practice mindfulness than others. Some people are, their minds are so distraught and so utterly incapable of going into one-pointedness that mindfulness is very difficult for them. And others have mindfulness already established to a certain extent through their daily Um, behavior and daily maybe daily um, even jobs that it isn't that difficult so it may be more or less difficult but everybody can do it nobody is exempt everybody can do it and so the same with the chance some people find it more difficult some people find it easier but everybody can do it Everybody needs time. And some instruction. Because those people, and I've met numbers of them, I can't say exactly how many now, over the years, there are people who do them accidentally. But that doesn't work out well. Because without the instruction what it is and how to proceed, 
they get perturbed and uh, or excited or think there's something quite remarkable about themselves. There's nothing remarkable about sajanas. Nothing. It's remarkable if we don't do them. But doing them is not remarkable. It's nothing special. It's exactly the way the mind goes. And this is something that is very important to remember. It's nothing remarkable. Just as it isn't remarkable that if we don't kill, steal, lie, or rape anybody. That's not remarkable, is it? It's keeping the precepts in order. Well, that's part of the path. So it's not remarkable to do the jhanas. It's part of the path. If we should be interested in a spiritual path. That, of course, is an if. Not many people are comparative to the population of this globe. It's not, you know, the majority is not. They are necessary and they are the natural way the mind wants to go. Everybody has experienced in their lives at one time or another, even maybe continuously, that there is an inner yearning, an inner kind of undisquiet, which says there must be more to life than this. Well, this is exactly the mind knowing that it hasn't got anywhere where it can actually find a little more than the ordinary thinking. So everybody can do it. It's a matter of time. It's nothing remarkable. It's totally natural. If it wasn't, we'd all be unnatural after we've done it. We're totally natural. And it is not super mundane. It only becomes super mundane when insight is added to it. That's why there are first the four jhanas and then comes the insight after it. Now with mindfulness, which is a prerequisite, the force foundation, the mental content concerns in the first instance the hindrances, which I have got as far as telling about four of them. There's, of course, there's a fifth one, which we also have to look at. The mental content, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, concerns many other things, which I will also describe and explain. I have, as you know, taken the first jhana, the five factors of the first jhana, into consideration and into relationship to the five hindrances because this is exactly what happens that they have a relationship so what you have been hearing are the first two fruits which are simple and short then the four requisites which has already included the explanation of the first fruit that comes to the spiritual life after having been engaged in practice on the requisites. So the we could say that the first jhana is the third fruit. But the removal of the hindrances is not considered to be the fruit it is the 
cause for the first jhana. Now, the first jhana is usually described by the Buddha, very briefly, by the way, nothing elaborate in his explanations, secluded from sense contacts, secluded from outer discursiveness, which means secluded from the hindrances. We have to seclude ourselves from the thinking, which is the worst sense contact, as far as meditation is concerned, in order to get to the first jhana. So, obviously, in the first jhana, the hindrances do not arise in any of the jhanas. But we are now concerned with the first one. The hindrances do not arise. And after we have done the first jhana, it is very helpful if we haven't gone any further after the second, third, it's also quite helpful to look back and see what the mind is like without the hindrances, which will give us additional impetus in our daily lives to get rid of them. The whole thing hinges on a clear seeing of oneself and an inner sense of courage like being a warrior defeating the enemies. It doesn't mean going into argumentation about it. It means the courageous slaying of that which is defiled in oneself. That's what it's all about. And if one doesn't do that, there's no chance of living a spiritual life. It's um, a little extra hobby or something like that. Lots of people do it that way. It's quite nice. At least this gives one the satisfaction that there must be something to it. But if one really wants to do it, it's got to be that. And nobody else can do it for one. The Buddha gave instructions over and over again and as you can see, you're only getting part of some of them, which I consider to be the most important ones, of course, and which are again and again mentioned as being extremely important. But he called himself, I'm the sure of the way. I can't do a thing for anybody. And if oneself hasn't got the gumption to do it, nobody will do it for one. It takes inner courage and it takes steadfastness. It takes a kind of character which is not easily swayed by its own emotions, never mind other people's emotions. They, of course, have no part in this. So we are in the first jhana at a, a crossroads where we can look back afterwards when we've come out, even if we come out of second or third, doesn't matter, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, doesn't matter, but we are now talking about first, to look back and see what's the mind like without the hindrances, because they cannot possibly arise during it, and see the difference. And if one then sees that difference, there might arise in the mind that absolute determination, I want to be without them all the time. It takes just that. 
that determination. Obviously, it's not going to be successful immediately, but that renewed determination is the way the mind will go. One has to be quite clear about this, that where the mind wants to go, that's where it's going. What else? If, you, if the mind says, I'm now going to do walking meditation, that's what it's going to do. And then the mind says, I'm bored, I'm going to stop, so it stops. Where the mind wants to go, that's where it's going. But it takes that inner steadfastness, that rock-like quality, which isn't to be swayed, once having seen what is good. The fifth factor of the first jhana is, of course, one-pointedness. It's got to be. And this factor remains with us all through the jhanas and becomes the only factor in the fourth jhana. Eka gata in Pali. Eka one gata point, I presume. I'm sorry, I don't know the word. But it means one-pointedness. Now this one-pointedness effectively counteracts the hindrance that most human beings, not all, but most human beings have the most difficulty with. Sensual desire, the desire for sensual gratification, which doesn't mean that I want uh, a bigger car and a better fridge and a new house and new clothes. It doesn't mean that at all. It means I want my comforts. I want it nice. I want people to be nice to me. I want them to appreciate me. I want everything to go the way I really feel good about it. Desire for sensual gratification. Whatever doesn't feel good, I don't like it. And this desire for sensual gratification is the root for our existence. And therefore, one could say, probably quite truthfully, that everybody has the most trouble with that. Not just most people, but everybody. Although it manifests in some people as hate. So some people have more difficulty with hate as then with greed. But based, it's all based on this desire which is craving. And of course hate is nothing but the craving to get rid of. So we could really truthfully say that this is the worst of our hindrances. The desire for sensual gratification. And the worst of it is that it's supported by society. It's justifiable. Why shouldn't I have it nice? If I can afford it, I'm not hurting anybody with it. It's okay. Get myself comfortable. Make it nice for myself. Try to only talk to people who really say the right things, which I think are right, so that I never have anything to worry about. That's the way people think they're going to get happy. That's what society is all about. That's what life is all about. It just has one flaw in it. It doesn't work. But otherwise, 
It looks okay, doesn't it? And hate is not supported by society. Nobody likes anybody screaming or killing or being furious. It's not supported. It's very unpleasant. But the other one, yes, that's okay. That's what we want. And because it's, as I said, flaw of not working, we continue to search for it. We think, either consciously or subconsciously, most of the time subconsciously, that if we were just a little cleverer, we'd make it. Or, if one of the things which are bothering us would be removed. Now, of course, if that one thing gets removed, we find something else that needs to be removed. But we don't think like that. We don't look back, having, had, having removed certain people from our lives, certain situations, anything. We don't look back that we've done that dozens of times and haven't changed a thing. We think if we just keep going and look and look and look and get another person or another place to live, or another this, or another that, it will be all right. The desire for sensual gratification is compared by the Buddha to being in debt, having to pay again and again. It just doesn't come to an end. If we have a debt at the bank, we might pay it off before we die, if we're lucky, otherwise our rejoicing heirs will have to do it. But this one, we can't pay off if we haven't seen that it's got such a flaw in it that it isn't worth being in debt to it. He compared the water pond to one into where many different colors had been thrown so one can't see one's likeness. It all looks glittering out there. Isn't it nice? Such nice weather, beautiful trees, everything's okay. So why am I perfectly happy? What's wrong? Must be somebody that's doing that to me. Oh, I'm sure it's him, or her, or this, or that. Must be. What else can it be? Well, what it is is that it just can't work because not only is it impermanent and therefore won't stick around, the sensual gratification, but it is connected with wanting. And the first and second noble truths are quite clear on that point. All wanting is dukkha. There's disquiet because I want. So it can't work. It's doomed from the start. Five billion people, minus a few that are, have seen that, and I have no guess as how few those are, are doing it. Is it any wonder that the Buddha said, were mentally deranged? He said, we're like children playing in a house on fire and not letting go of our toys to jump out of the fire. He said, well, mentally sick. Not sick, that we call mentally sick, that we have to go to a, a you know, hospital. But because we can't see it, everybody's doing it. And that, of course, is also a, has an insidious effect on us. Because everybody else is doing it, we think must be right. So many can't be wrong. Well, so many can be wrong. And if we ever have another look at what humanity has done in the way of war and peace, since we have records of it, written records, 
we could easily see that so many have been wrong. There's always a few once in a while that are right that really have seen it, spiritual masters. And they tell. They tell everybody who wants to listen. Well, people sit there and they listen, but do they do it? One wonders. One-pointedness effectively counteracts essential desire because you can't be one-pointed and have sensual desire at the same time. We could, however, go into the first jhana for a second, come out, go in, come out, go in. So we've got sensual desire. Sensual desire for what? For ego affirmation in this case. We only know the ego is around when we think. I think, therefore I am. Wonderful logic which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it does have that effect on us, that while we are thinking, we have that support system. And therefore, people often go in and out because the desire for the support system has not abated yet. If one can stay in the first jhana and pay attention to the uh, delight and there are stronger or milder first jhanas, then that desire for the time being is cut out, for the time being, guaranteed to arise again when one comes out. Sensual desire is only, and hate, both greed and hate, are only completely eliminated for the non-returner, one step before complete enlightenment. But it gets effectively reduced on the way there. One of the things which don't work is forcing oneself not to desire, because that too is a desire in the negative doesn't work. But what does work is gaining more and more insight and more and more purification, purification through one's meditative practice and through one's daily habits and thereby reducing the desires automatically. Mostly it's thought beginning at the wrong end. Don't want. It's just like somebody telling you, relax. You're all tensed up and somebody says, relax. How can you do it? It's not possible. But if somebody will explain the reason for the tension and then give step-by-step instruction of letting the shoulders drop, of having the stomach come forward, of thinking about something else, the relaxation may take place. It's the same with this. It's useless to say, don't desire, don't have wishes, don't buy this, don't go there. Practice a meditation. That's an automatic purification. And gain insight into the unsuitability or the non-possibility of gratification through getting your desires um, Accomplished. There's no gratification. It only lasts a moment. So see that clearly and then see why it is useless to want more and to get more and to have all these nice things that we can so easily afford. 
it's very good that we can easily afford them. The people who can't afford them are the ones that are having a much harder time with them. When they do come over to the West, they're like kids in the lolly shop and they fall by the wayside. Or their mind is concerned with getting what they haven't got, which they have seen that other people have. There it has to be a deliberate turning away, which is much more difficult. But we, having had all these material things already, and probably some of the emotional ones too, can already through insight be aware of their lack of fulfillment. And only then does it become comparatively simpler to let go. It's in comparison, it's simpler. It still has to have that determination behind it. Our one-pointedness, therefore, is a automatic letting go of the sensual desire. Now, in the daily life, the Buddhist uh, instruction to counteract sensual desire, the five Aryaedis, the five noble powers, It's a very interesting bit of discourse. It means power. And in Sanskrit, Siddhi. And used then and now as what we call supernatural powers, like flying through the air or lifting oneself off the cushion and all that kind of stuff. And the Buddha was often asked about these things by the Brahmins, who some of them obviously had that ability to elevate and uh, levitate and uh, have certain abilities of uh, mind reading and that. And asked them about these cities and he said, there are, there are five noble powers, five Arya Edis. So he turned, he often did this, he turned the word around, the word Siddhi, which is the same as the word Idi, and turned it around to show what is the real noble power. It's not levitating and things of that order. On the contrary, that's a game that people play. And these powers, he explained like this, to see the non-satisfactory aspect in those things that we find desirable. And to see or in those things that we find lovely, to see the lovely in the undesirable, to see the lovely in the desirable and undesirable, to see the undesirable in both the lovely and unlovely and finally for the Arahant to be totally equanimous about both. So in other words the counteraction the remedy the antidote 
against our sensual desire in everyday life, it is to see that which is obviously not desirable in that which we desire. What is not desirable? Well, the fact that it's impermanent and therefore it's going to give rise to worry whether we can keep it, him or her, whatever it may be. What is also undesirable is the fact that it ages and decays, it, him or her. What's also undesirable is that it's prone to disease, to falling apart, to getting broken. All that's undesirable about the desirable. Now, if it concerns a thing, we look at the fact that it's just something extra. It's not really needed. And we have to learn the difference between need and greed. And because society supports greed totally, in fact, makes every attempt to arouse it in us, we've got to do it ourselves. Every newspaper ad, every billboard, every TV commercial, every show window, everything that can be seen or read is designed to arouse greed under the pretext it's need we've got to be the ones to know the difference whatever we know that's ours what we don't know well, that we have to learn sometimes the hard way so that's things people that's even worse when we want people maybe we can fall back upon past experience that's very helpful that they are changeable, that they are prone to decay, disease, and death, that they create worries. The Buddha once said, a man came to him, crying, lamenting, grieving. And the Buddha said, what's the matter? And the man said, my only son, beloved son, just died. The Buddha said, what one loves brings sorrow. And the man said, what nonsense. Such a terrible teacher. No compassion. Ran away. Told it to all his friends. What a terrible teacher Buddha was. And the friend said, but you are proving him right. You're lamenting and grieving. And he said, ah. not the only one what one loves brings sorrow because there is that attachment and the attachment is our clinging and our clinging keeps us back if you now cling to this pillow you're sitting on are glued to it don't want to lose it can't go anywhere, can you? You've got to sit right there. You're stuck. That's what clinging means, getting stuck. We can't go ahead because we're clinging to something 
or someone. That doesn't mean non-loving. Pure love is not clinging. Pure love is the warmth of the heart that's caring and concerned but doesn't have to own, doesn't have to have, doesn't even have to be near to. Nothing has no business and any of that has any business in love. These are connotations and uh, explanations and mind convolutions which we have built into the word loving and desirable and delightful. We have built it into that in order to gratify our first hindrance, sensual desire. It's all very human and normal and therefore unsatisfactory. That's all it is. Human, normal and unsatisfactory. And it can be overcome. It can be transcended. And transcending it means a slow and gradual purification. So with people, delightful, desirable, decay, disease and death, all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. So, maybe it hasn't vanished yet, but it certainly has changed. It couldn't not have. Because all changes constantly, including oneself, so one has a different approach to the matter. Love becomes pure and totally satisfying when it doesn't have this connotation of wanting to keep. As soon as that is gone, there's no sorrow. The explanation of the Buddha meant that the wanting to keep, because the man had just lost his son, so he wanted to keep him, obviously. Obviously, society supports this kind of reaction. In fact, there are many books written about it, and uh, articles, and uh, how to grieve properly, and how to um, get over it after a certain length of time, and what one should say to people who are grieving, and how to explain it to them. Well, it may all be very well, but it's on the level of unsatisfactoriness. It's on the level of the human approach to the impermanent trying to make it permanent. It's just not possible. We want to go against the law of nature. We don't like it. We are all part and parcel of the law of nature. In fact, we are depicting the law of nature. We are it, and we don't like it. Maybe that's the reason why we find it so hard to love ourselves. Because we are actually the law of nature and we don't like anything about it. We don't like it to be impermanent. We don't like it to be, have decay and disease and death in it. We don't like any part of that. We want it solid, continuous, everlasting, non-changing. Now with these five powers that we can develop, we will see in everything that comes to our notice both aspects which, mean, which prevents us from disliking. We will see that which is desirable and that which is undesirable. And we will see that in that which we think is wonderful 
and see it also in that which we think is terrible. What does that produce? It produces equanimity. Equanimity, even-mindedness, which is the highest of all emotions and is one of the seven factors of enlightenment and arises in the fourth jhana, the fourth meditative approaching. But it needs to be practiced also in daily life. So this noble power, these noble powers, are designed toward that practice so that we don't get to the clinging stage. Um, then stay with the inside stage. So if there's something that's extremely desirable, a person, which is usually the greatest of problems for everyone, people, people are problems to each other because they're problems to themselves. That desirable person contains undesirable aspects. Not being nasty or anything like that, but because it is a phenomena which has no solidity. In other words, keeping the Dhamma in mind. Which has, does not mean that one can't be together with people, on the contrary, but it means this terrible, strong holding on where we actually have to make allowances all the time, where we can't just continue going and um, developing. So these five IAEDs, there are four of them, first, the delightful and the undelightful, the undelightful and the delightful, then seeing one in both aspects, the fifth one being the enlightened one, the totally uh, equanimous person, who sees that automatically, without trying. The first four are the practice. So with that, as our daily practice, we have also the additional help which we've already done, namely taking ourselves apart into all the bits and pieces that we consist of, which is an extremely effective antidote against sensual desire and sexual desire. Not taking the other person apart, but taking oneself apart, because we know already everybody looks like that. No difference. So it has that as an effective means and shows one quite clearly that this connotation of beauty and desirability is really only a machination of our own mind. It doesn't have the effectiveness that the inside path can give. It is brought in, in, in we are imbued with it because we are the law of nature and the law of nature is for proliferation and propagation. Kids. That's what it's all about. The law of nature. But if we actually do have the desire in us or the intention in us for spiritual growth, we can see that also as part of this growth aspect that the proliferation and propagation being fine on the mundane level and no, nothing wrong with it on the mundane level does not bring the satisfaction that everybody's craving for anybody who's ever had kids knows all about it it's quite nice at times 
Uh, it has its moments, one could say. <laughs> and it's fine, you know, once they're all grown up and doing their own thing. So the, the all these um, the different methods help us to see this clearly and thereby transcend one day the marketplace, mundane mentality and reality. And our culture, our cultural refinement really has no part in that. The cultural refinement is a totally different matter because people often think of themselves, quite rightly so, that they have certain cultural refinement which puts them already on a more spiritually advanced level. The two have nothing to do with each other. In the Buddha's time, the street sweepers became enlightened and their cultural refinement was certainly nil. So, um, and it's possible today. So there's um, the only helpfulness that we have through any kind of learning we've done in the past is that our mind is more capable of retaining because we've learned that and logical conclusions which is that connecting I've been talking about but cultural refinement has nothing to do with it so we have that has nothing to do with transcending the mundane Transcending the mundane is seeing ourselves in a different way. Ekagata, one-pointedness, counteracting, essential desire. Now there's one other thing that needs to be said, or could be said about sensual desire, but I will go into that also at another point. I'll mention it here. I already said that our desire for sensual gratification is the underlying factor in every person because of the fact that craving is in also embedded in hate. So whether we are a hate person or a greed person, these are the two main characteristics, there are others, um, it doesn't matter. Craving is embedded in both because hate is wanting to get rid of. And the craving, which has been the cause for our being here, being in the human form and having whatever happens to us in this human form this craving is the craving for existence and we then go one step further and say but I want a nice existence obviously I mean, nobody's fool enough to say I don't want a nice existence so I want existence and then I want it to be nice on top of it and of course one does all one can to make it that it doesn't stay permanently nice, we may have found out by now. But if we still have the little notebook with all the ifs in it, we still haven't quite got it. If only. And then we've got the little notebook with the list. In the head most likely. Um, this craving for existence in Pali Bhava Tanha, Bhava is existence, Tanha is craving, is the cause for being born. 
is the cause for the continuation of all problems. Because it isn't only physical existence, which is its basic underlying necessity. It is also ego existence. And whoever doesn't support my ego is the one that is working against my craving and therefore should be eliminated the quicker the better. Either by my running away or by pushing that person away or by whatever means, shooting, bombing, whatever. Any means whatsoever. Mostly running away. It seems to be the easiest. It's been done all the time. Um, but sometimes, of course, also if one has enough authority to tell the person to get out. So that is also craving for existence, this ego existence, which needs to assert itself and needs a certain area to assert itself in. Some people need a large area to assert themselves in. Their, their, their nature is like that. They need a lot of area, a lot of people to assert themselves over. And some people would like a tiny little corner where they can just assert themselves, in that tiny little corner where nobody can get in. But there is this assertion, that self-assertion, which is part of bhavatama, of craving for existence, self-assertion. And then any time, of course, this is um, in jeopardy, there is grief, pain, and lamentation, tragedy. There are three cravings, which are the underlying factor for the whole mess. The craving for existence, the craving for non-existence, and the craving for sensual gratification. So with the craving for non-existence, it means things aren't going right for me, let them see how they get along without me. I'm going to kill myself. And most people have had, at least once in their lifetime, this suicidal idea, I'm going to do away with myself, and everything will be over with. It's utter nonsense, of course. Nothing will be over with. It's all going to start all over again. And this is a very unproductive uh, way of, uh, of dying because it's connected with hate and therefore re-arises with hate. So it's totally unproductive and it is just the other side of the coin. Me, 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 me. I want to be, I don't want to be. The bigger the me, the more trouble. In German, we have a very funny saying about that. I don't know if it's going to come out funny in English, but I'll try it anyway. We say if somebody has a huge ego, it's like having a necktie which is uh, trailing along on the floor, and everybody can step on it. And of course, it hurts them. It's such a long necktie that you can't help but step on it. So. We, 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 it's a very easy thing to see in, in someone. But the craving for existence is our ego assertion, and everybody who is not at least, um, well, wants to turn up, is having a lot of trouble with it. And 
the, non, the uh, craving for non-existence is exactly the same thing only turned around. And with it comes the third craving. These are the three cravings which we are beset with. Because we don't just want existence, we want nice existence. And therefore we want our essential desires gratified. And again, not only is it mentioned as the third craving, it is mentioned as the first hindrance. And because it is mentioned as the first, hin- first hindrance, we can see that it is the opening of the whole Pandora's box of hindrances. The first one opens the whole thing up. Sensual desire, gratification of sensual desire. And it is the one which is the hardest to see because it is so justifiable and it manifests in so many little things that it takes a lot of mindfulness to become aware of that. And that's where mindfulness is at its best. Watching our essential desires. And they don't have to be sexual. That's the strongest one. They don't have to be for luxury. That is usually with most people who have gone through that already done with. It is the underpinning of having nice existence. Nice existence not based on inner joy, but on sense contact. Any sense contact, including thinking. So here we have now, finally, the last of the five hindrances and the last of the five factors of meditative absorption, all five arising in the first jhana. And as I will be speaking about the next following jhanas, you will see that they gradually fall away um, and remain at the end only the last one, the ekasata, the one-pointedness, which is also sometimes described as equanimity and sometimes described as peace. Whatever it is, it doesn't have the other connotations around it. But before we're going to get to the next jhana, there are other mental content which we'll have to hear about another time. Now you can ask some questions if you like. Request. Request. The lung. Practice. What was understand that? Yeah, was it, uh, is, is this a sentence you were thinking about or just the word itself? Because it can mean many things. Requisite. Requisites. Notwendigkeiten. Um, to, to be swayed. To be swayed. Um, von etwas um, beeinflusst sein. Yeah. Don't ask me in French, please. <laughs> okay. You know the first two. Okay. The third and fourth go like this. That you can see both the delightful and the undelightful in that which you find desirable and in that which you find undesirable. In other words, you see both factors in both 
aspect. It's just the Buddha again making it clearer than clear. Going into the last bit of explanation. Is that now clear? And the fifth one, you got that. Fifth one means not having to do any of this automatic equanimity. Okay, what else? Yes. Um, I think that uh, you made it very, you made it very clear when you when you were talking about overcoming the defilements. But for, me, for many people, um, I, I remember when I, I was first in Thailand that the, there was a monk who kept on saying, "Be like a warrior," and you mentioned the same thing. And I think in in my mind, and perhaps in other people's, this warrior aspect of bringing up the energy of the warrior to overcome the defilements, because of conditioning, it always brings force along with it. We, we have a, um, maybe because of movies and, and all of the other things, we think of the warrior and always force. And, and I think it's very important for me, as well as anyway, to, to realize that the weapon that you're using is wisdom. That, that's how it came to me when I was thinking about it. That, that if you've got it. <laughs> if you have that weapon. <laughs> but uh, the warrior that I mentioned uh, wasn't the one to overcome the defilement. I mean, he can go ahead and do that with wisdom. I said that. I said that the, you can't desire not to desire. You have to have enough insight to realize that your desires don't make you happy anyway, even when they're gratified. But what I was referring to with the warrior was a kind of person that has, is resolute, has determination, this, uh, is unswayed by his or her own emotions and other people's emotions to keep on doing this. It's not necessary. The defilements, uh, the desires, particularly the one I was talking about, is something that has to be done with wisdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. No way, other way. Because just to tell yourself, I'm not going to have this, is going to bring the reaction but I want it and I'm going to feel uh, as if I'm being denied and as if I'm having a sort of um, uh, I'm underprivileged as all these reactions come up but with wisdom yes of course you realize well <laughs> the last desire didn't do it so this one isn't going to do it either and that's uh, the way to work with, with particular well with all the defilements of course but the warrior one I was thinking about was more one that is strong, the st inner strength, an inner strength. It's indispensable, absolutely indispensable. Someone who doesn't have inner strength cannot go along this path because everything is against it. Everything is against it. All our sense contacts, everybody else is against it. Not by word of mouth, they might not even say anything. They say, oh, isn't it wonderful, you're a spiritual person or something. They may not be against it, but their whole attitude of the world that we live in is against this warrior path. I was more thinking of a warrior that has this rock-like quality within where it doesn't matter what other people say or do. That sort of thing. But you're absolutely right with the wisdom. Yes.
it's a very good thing. It's the AA way of I'm not going to have the next drink. It's absolutely correct. Um, I mean, they, uh, I think they've got 12 points, the uh, AA, and they're all excellent, every one of them. I went to uh, two of their meetings once, and I read the chart. Yeah. Um, yes, one should make up one's mind every morning, I'm going to meditate today, because thinking of having to meditate every morning for the rest of one's life is daunting. Absolutely daunting, you know. Well, what if I don't feel like it, you know? So, um, yes, today I'm going to do it, you know. And I, I, I think this is very effective for most people, always for everybody. I think it's an excellent way of, of dealing with one's own um, difficulty. But you know, a person who can make any resolution is already a warrior, whether it's long, short, or middle size. Anybody who's making a resolution is a warrior against the defilement. I mean, I've, as I said before, if, I, if anybody expects to be perfect, that would be hopeless. It's just a matter of the practice that counts. It's not the perfection. Not at all. But just that, just that much, that's it. And then keeping it for that one day or whatever it may be, is excellent. That's where, where we have to work with. Well, also, it, it shows you also that we are not the same one moment after the next. If we dredge up the memory, we are, at that moment, a dredger up of memories. But we are not reliving that old stuff. We're just dredging up memories. So, if we are in this moment, we could be concentrated. And we are a totally different person. Yes, we, we can't wait to be perfect. We, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't live long enough. So it's better to get going with whatever one has. And the, uh, the purification system, which is embedded in the first jhana already, is uh, such an enormous help that it's, it ap- uh, appears and comes about without any announcements. It's, um, it, only after having done it for some time does one all of a sudden realize that certain things have naturally fallen away and without having to do anything about it. So it is um, naturally one has to also work in one's daily life with it, but the, the help one gets is enormous. So it's a necessary pathway. Anything else? Is it quite clear what the connection between this, that, and the other is? How it all works together? Is that clear? 
until we forget and then I'll, then I'll mention it again. No? <laughs> and also it's very important mm, to become very self-reliant in this practice. One can't rely on the teacher at all. One has to rely on oneself. A teacher is only there to remind one. Remind again and again, that's all. As long as there is that possibility, yes, it's a reminder. But the only thing that really matters is that one has the Dhamma in one's own heart. That's the most important thing. And that means that one keeps on practicing it on one's own. The self-reliance gives a great feeling of freedom. The Buddha was extremely opposed to the guru system. He never had anything to do with that. It's a very old system. It's uh, Indian, Brahmanic, always, in the, always there when he was alive. He was absolutely opposed to that. Everybody is on his or her own. But he gave instructions how to do it. So we're all our own guru. Nobody to hang on to. Nobody to do it for one. Because we all have the ability to do it ourselves. And that is a very comforting and I think an extremely um, relieving and freeing understanding. We don't have to hang on to anybody. We can do it. If we have that as our theme song, we will find ourselves also much freer in other matters where we have a dependency system.